So uh, we're talking about frogs, martyrdom, and Holocaust, <laughs> of course. <laughs> and we're looking at Exodus chapter 8 about the plague of frogs. So the first mention of the frogs is um, verse 26. And if Pharaoh refuses to send my people, I'm going to plague him with tzafardim, with frogs. And so they will arise from the Nile. They'll go into your houses, and your bedrooms, and your beds. And then he's including Aaron. Very unusual. Some of the plagues Aaron is involved, some he's not. Tell Aaron to put your hand, uh, your stick out over the, over the rivers, over the Nile, over the lakes, and bring up the frogs over the land of Egypt. So he did that. Now, it says in the verse 2 of chapter uh, eight. He struck his hand out over the waters of Egypt. Vatal Hatsafardeya. And Rashi says, it's highlighted, Tsafardeya Achas It was one big frog. Right. So initially there was just one frog because it says Ha. Tsefardea, which could be translated as the frog or the frog species, the species of frog, right? Hatsefardea. But they would strike that one. And the Medrash says, out of that would come others. That's Shmos Rabbah. But upshuto yeshlomo. Then Rashi corrects himself or adds, but that's not the that's not that's the midrashic reading. One frog hit it, many come out. What's that um, Mexican where you hit the pinata? The pinata, right? Upshuto yeshlomo. But the the pashtus is the plain meaning is sherotzatzfardaim that the whole species of frogs is considered in the singular tense um, etc okay now I want you to uh, look at the Midrash Tehillim that's over here because God sends a message to Paro to release his people the message is ridiculed and rejected then tells Moshe to strike with the plagues. And so the river brings forth frogs abundantly and they come up. Okay. Now, in verse um, 28, it was in the plural, the Sharat Hayor Tsefardim. The Nile should spew out this amphibious creature. While in verse 2 of chapter 8, it's in what happened, not what should be. Aaron stretches his hand out and the singular frog comes out. Um, now clearly the one that came out was an enormous frog because it covered all of Egypt. right? 
it says it's an it it covers the whole of Egypt. So this one frog is then hit repeatedly, and instead of dying of its wounds, uh, it multiplies and reproduces spontaneously. The streaming forth of swarms and swarms of frogs. Now the singular reference to frogs is fish or sheep or frogs. We don't say it's sheeps or fishes. We say the plural of a species is still the singular. Now, this second explanation of Rashi is quite rational and logical, um, but it suffers from one major problem. If the singular form denotes the plural, then why was the plural form used for Okay, And that's why Rashi seems to have produced the Midrashic interpretation. Um, sorry, let's do um, let's first do this one. Vatal Hatsafardeya, Lomo Nematsfardeya Bilashon Yochid, right? Omar Rabbi Elazar. So we have a machlokus between Rabbi Elazar ben Azaria and Rabbi Akiva. Now these two giants, Tanaim, have a long standing dispute as to how to interpret uh, the Torah. Uh, and we are, we encode it in Masib Rabbi Elazar, Rabbi Akiva, the Hayub Bnei Barak in the Agadah of Pesach. They are discussing this Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, the exodus of Egypt, and they get so involved until they forget time and the, and the pupils say, Rabbis, it's morning time, it's time to say the Shema. Omar Rabbi Elazar, Sefardeya Achasaya, so there was one frog. Hishritza umila kol Eretz Mitzrayim. And it bred rapidly so that it filled the land of Egypt. Umateze Sefardim Harbe, and it produced many. Omaro Ravizal ben Azaria. So Ravizara says to Rabbi Akiva, Akiva, Malacho Etzel Hagoda, what's your business in all this Agadic Midrashim? Why don't you just go back to where you belong, which is the halacha, right? That is, go um, leave homiletic interpretations to me or to others, because your interpretation is just too fantastic. There's one big frog, and mythically it multiplies and rapidly spreads. And just go back to Nagoim Ve'olos, a halachic mesechta, a halachic tractate, a halachic order of Nagoim and Oholos. Don't busy yourselves with Agada. Stay with Nagoim and Oholos. Okay. But now the Medrash says, well, but then what am I? Rabbi Kiva gave us a rational explanation as to the singular versus the plural frogs. So, what are we going to do with the question? If you're going to dismiss Rabbi Akiva's homiletic explanation, his Midrashic, mythic, fantastic view of one frog, what are you going to do with the grammatical problem that the Medrash has between the plural and the singular? There was one original frog that emerged from the Nilus, and it summoned and croaked to the others, and they came. Now that's brought 
in Sanhedrin 67b and Medrash Rabbah Shmos um, as, a, as, as explanation. So if we were expecting a debate between a rationalist, Rabbi Yolanda ben and a metaphysician, Rabbi Akiva, we'd be sorely disappointed. It sounded promising at first. Rabbi Akiva is going to show us that there was one frog, spontaneous reproduction spread through Egypt. Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah chastises him, says, what are you, what's your business in Haggadah, in homiletics? So one would think that the object of his anger was Akiva's fantastic interpretation. Indeed, the advice he gives to Rabbi Akiva is, redirect your intellectual efforts to a clear-cut halachic inquiry. Don't mess with myth. Don't mess with homiletics. And that seems understandable. But then what happens? Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah gives his own explanation, which is equally fantastic. What's rational about that? Seems quite similar to the Arab Akiva. There was one frog. Okay, instead of beating it and produce multiple frogs, it summons the other frogs. Rationally, that doesn't make sense. It's hard for us to see the superiority of Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah's approach over Rabbi Akiva. And why Rabbi Kibo is encouraged to abandon this study of myth and homiletics. So the distinction between Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Lozabizari is not between rationalism and metaphysics, but just a matter of degree. Meaning Rabbi Lozabizari seems to be saying to Rabbi Akiva, you're taking this too far. One frog, and you beat it like the pinata, mayana, pinata, pinata. You beat it, and multiple frogs. Out. That's too. That's too fantastic Why? for me. The whole thing's fantastic. All these plays are fantastic. Well, of course, but so, so Rabbi Elazar is 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 worried about the degree to which Rabbi Akiva go. Remember, Rabbi Meir is chastised in many times in Midrash. I think I counted seven times in Midrash by Rapopa. Dayecho Rabbi Meir atad doresh midrash chutz meaning that there is a limit of rabbinic imagination sometimes whether it's theological or theodicy or fantastic you're going outside the bounds so then another tana or amoira chastises you and brings you back into the gedera but what then could be the reason for rabbi Loza's rebuke seeing that his analysis is just as fantastic as you say the Hasidic masters then come in and offer an overall view of the plagues that help us understand the argument between Rabbi Loza and Rabbi Akiva and give us an insight into the plague of Tzfardeya in general and to the grammar we have between the singular and the plural in particular. Rav Kalonimus Kalman Epstein in his The Moor Vashemesh, he was a Talmud of the Polish school, going back to the Noim Elimelech and the Choyz of Lublin, explains our problem in context of the larger understanding of the Makros. According to Kabbalah that he received from his Rebbeim, the purpose of the plagues was to establish the truth of God's existence on the earth. The first three, that God uh, is better than the Egyptian gods, the second three, that God came down from upstairs and controlled the world, and the last three, that he alone can do it without the help of Moshe and Aaron. 
Had God so decided, he could simply have effortlessly taken us out of Egypt, according to the Mar of Hashemish. What do I need this elaborate ten plagues? So there is a theological purpose to the plagues. And in the mystical tradition, the ten plagues are correlated with two separate tens. The ten Asara Mahamarot of creation and the Aseret uh, Dibrot and the Aseret Sephirot. So the Kabbalistic tree, that is the divine Godhead, is split into ten. With that ten, he creates the world with ten Mahamarot. In Egypt, he decreates the world step by step, each um, of the plagues representing another act of decreation that parallels so that let there be light is paralleled by darkness the plague of darkness and then there will be a recreation of a theological universe of the ten asara dibrot of the Torah and so in reverse sequence chesed Gevura Teferes Netzach Hod Yisod Malchus Chochma Bina Das Chesed Gevura Teferes Netzach Hod Yisod Malchus those ten Sephirot in reverse sequence the first plague blood represents Malchus um, kingship because God is the king of the universe and the Mar Shemesh says that the Nile river was the blood, the god of Egypt the Nile, Nile god um, and so by hitting it and causing it to bleed, it dies. That is the reverse of Malchus. So the Nile was in turn created by Pharaoh, and therefore turning the beloved Nile to blood as an attack of their Malchus and makes God's mastery of the physical universe apparent. The next plague, frogs then, in reverse order of the spheres, is the sphere of Yesod. Yesod is Tzaddik, Yosef, Tzaddik, Yesod, Olam. Yosef is the generative organ of the body. It, it produces, it reproduces the body. And the frogs would counter the next sphere of Yesod. That is, Yesod, the Tzaddik connects the upper world and the lower world, the world above and the world below. And so the sphere of Yesod is connecting heaven and earth. Reb Nachman, Reb Nachman Mibreslev, and the Morva Shemesh, building upon a tradition found in the Ton of and in the writings of the Arizal, note that the word Sephardea can be split into two, especially when we deconstruct it into its two elemental words. Sephardea is a combination of Tzipor, Tzadik Pei Resh, and Dea, knowledge. So a frog is therefore a mythical, knowledgeable bird, turning the Tzfardea from an amphibian into a flying creature that could reach up to the heavens. The Tzfardea then becomes an emblematic of a intermediate type of creature, the amphibian, right? And we know from evolution that that's how the fish came to land, right? This whole evolutionary process using the amphibians. But here it's used in a mythical sense because it becomes a bird that flies. So it's a flying creature that has das, it has knowledge. Rab Nachman takes the same tradition in a different direction. Birds possess two unique abilities, flight and song. The ability to fly is the spiritual identification 
of this plague with the sphere of Yesod, connecting heaven and earth. But Reb Nachman then pushes us into a different tack, the idea of song, the ability to sing. What may be sound to some as a croaking of a frog, and if you've ever been to the countryside near lakes, they can keep you up at night, especially the male ones. Uh, it is some is considered the frog croaking others consider it the song of a bird so there's again this dual role of the tzafardeya as a tzipordeya that has the ability to fly but as the ability to sing the beautiful singing of the frog silenced the psalmist King David why? the Medrash recounts that when Govod Melech completed the book of Psalms he experienced momentary pride and asked God is there anything in this world that sings songs as beautiful as these Tehillim to you and the Rabboni Shalolam showed him a frog to teach David that the song of the frog surpasses David's songs. Aside from the Hasidic tradition, rabbinic sources have quite a lot to say about the frog. Its beautiful song is not the frog's only claim to fame. The frogs of Egypt served as an inspiration for others in the future who would face perilous situations with heroism and bravery. And with that, I want to come to this Medrash Tehillim, Sochato, Mismo 28. We're now going from frogs to Holocaust, or to the book of Daniel. Where did the three men, Hananiah, Mishal, and Nazariah, were doyresh from the Torah, Meaning, where did they learn the halachic allowance, the license to die al-Kiddush Hashem as martyrs, to jump into that oven? Where did they get the halachic uh, reasoning to do that? Nosu mm-hmm. mitzfardaim. They took, they made a kalvachoma, an a fortiori argument from the frogs. Mark Sipohen, what does it say by them? God says, these frogs will go into your house. Okay, they'll go into your beds, they'll go into your kitchens. But then it says they're also going to go into your fireplaces. What? What's going to happen to them if they jump into the fireplace? Die. They'll die. Well, when are you going to see the flames of a uh, of a uh, tanur going up? It's only when the when the tanur is very hot. Melamed, and from that they learnt the Arfushiori argument. They learnt the Arfushi argument. Thank you. The Kalvachoma. That the Tzfardeim mashlichos atzmon letocha tanur. They would throw themselves into the furnace. Lekadesh Moshe Lakadosh Baruch Hu. I thought that this was an unbelievable drush. That is, according to the Medrash, Hanana Mishal Azariah didn't just spontaneously say we're going to die al Kiddush Hashem. They had to do it. They had to steig. They had to learn a drush. They, they, from the they same, had to paskin, yeah. and they paskined it from a kalvachoma uh, by the tzfardim. That is, 
just like the Tzfadim, when they came into the houses of Egypt, threw themselves into the furnaces for no use at all, other than the Kaddish Shem Shemayim. So too, Hananel, Mishael, and Azariah died al Kiddush Hashem, or threw themselves into the furnace, al Kiddush Hashem, which begs the whole question of martyrology. And when is a person uh, allowed to die al Kiddush Hashem? There are halachas about this, right? Oh, yeah. um, whether you do it because of the three cardinal sins of murder, idolatry, and immorality, or if a Roman soldier tells you to tie your wrong shoelace, but it's in front of everyone, and you know that that will be Mekadashem Shemaim, then it can be for something that's not particularly a capital crime. Umar Poro Lehem HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And what was the outcome? What was the reward? They all died. And they all died. So what was their reward? It was a pure martyrology. But they weren't martyred. Wait. Hananel Mishav Azariah is learning from this. I understand. Right? Those that actually martyred themselves by throwing themselves into the furnace, the others all died. But those didn't die. Because they were saying, we're doing this to fulfill the gezerah of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. They themselves actually emerged from the flaming Tanur right. and returned to the thing. Because it says there, Rak Bayor Tisha Arno. Only the ones left in the Nile will remain. Everyone that came onto the land uh, died. So... When the Torah describes the plague of frogs, the scope of infestation is very precisely detailed, right? The river shall bring up the frogs. They'll go up into your house, your bedchamber, your bed, the house of your servants, your people, into your ovens, into your kneading troughs. Of all the points of infiltration, the oven is clearly not the most innocuous from the perspective of a frog. Entering a hot oven is very unpleasant, excruciating and fatal at worst. And yet God commanded that the ovens be filled with frogs and the frogs complied, entered the hot ovens along with or instead of the dough, meaning the dough goes into a hot oven. So the fact that it says into your ovens and your kneading troughs when you are kneading the dough, clearly the ovens were ready to receive the dough. Therefore, they jumped in as a substitute for the dough into the ovens. When faced with the situation of martyrdom, Hananiah, Mishal, and Azariah take their cue not from Avram who was thrown into Nimrod's furnace, but from the frogs who jumped into the hot ovens of Egypt because God said they must. So the author of this teaching is Todus of Rome. He was a leader of the community of scholars of the Talmud who actually had a yeshiva opposite the Vatican Todos. in the first century. Todos, is Todos or Todrus or Theodore in Greek. <laughs> I love it, Toad. Toad of Toad's Hall. Exactly. <laughs> Theodore in, in Latin, Todos in, in Aramaic. And the scholars asked a question. Gomorrah Psochim 53b. Was Todrus of Rome a great man or a powerful man? Toshima. 
This too did Tadros of Rome teach. What was the reason Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah delivered themselves for the sanctification of the name to the fiery furnace? They argued a Kalvachoma to themselves. And here's the Kalvachoma. Right now we just took, they took a cue. But what was the Kalvachoma that they said? Madoch, the frogs who are not commanded concerning Kiddush Hashem. Yet it is written, they shall come up and go into your houses and your ovens. And the oven is hot. And nevertheless, they jumped in. We who are commanded to be Mekadeh Shem Shemaim with our martyrdom, Kalvachoma, are we also? So the rabbis are arguing about what is this Todras? Is he a powerful man or is he a good scholar? They're questioning. He's sitting in Rome. Is he there for politics, to make deals, to keep us safe in Palestine from the Roman hegemony? Or Mamish, does he have a real base medrash? And is he learning? And is he steiging? Todros explains the precedent set by the frogs. They're not halachically obligated to, but they chose Kiddush Hashem, and therefore those who are halachically obligated to, Kalvachomer should do it. The frogs had no ancestral merit upon which to rely on for salvation, and yet they chose to endanger themselves. We who rely on schusovos for our fathers cannot but endanger ourselves likewise because we can, we can rely on schusovos. Now, the question of Kiddush Hashem, this brings me to the Holocaust and when is it appropriate and when was it not appropriate to save oneself? We weren't given a choice in the Holocaust. No one was given a choice. We were just told, right? It's a complex issue in Jewish law. When is the ultimate self-sacrifice a chiyuv? And when is it a subject of bechira? It's a big question in halacha. The very issue is the enduring lesson of the frogs, who were not absolutely obligated to martyr themselves, yet nonetheless knowingly made the ultimate sacrifice. So let's complete the circle by returning to the strange debate between Rabbi Kiva and Rabbi Loza ben Azariah that we started with. The argument was a grammatical argument. You said that there will be multiple frogs coming up as part of the plague. But in the end, only the singular frog or species of frog or one big frog actually came up. Rabbi Kiva, who the Talmud says lacked ancestral merit, he had no schuzovos, spoke of one big frog, a frog who was tortured and beaten. Rather than killing this one frog, the Egyptians' abuse caused countless frogs to appear, making life unbearable for the Egyptians and resulting in the redemption of the Jewish slaves. So Rabbi Akiva, despite the decrees and the beatings and the tortures of the Romans, without any zchusovos, in the face of torture, refused to succumb. His words of Torah gathered more force, creating Talmidim afterwards and a whole wave of Jewish identity. And what we now know as Rabbinic Judaism came from that group and creating the foundations of a Jewish Renaissance after the Hurban. Many more students then, we know how many students of the Talmidim, 24,000 who died during the Sefer Saomer, were inspired by the life and death of Rabbi Akiva. On the, in contrast, his colleague, Rabbi Lazben Azariah, 
is actually a plea to his colleague. Go back to Nagoyim and Ovalos, meaning go back to the tents. Meaning, stop teaching Torah in the face of the Romans, go back in hiding, go back into the tents and teach Nagoyim and Ovalos there quietly because of the danger. Once the wicked government issued a decree forbidding the Jews to study, Papas Ben Yehuda came and found Rabbi Akiva publicly teaching and occupying himself with the Torah. Are you not afraid of the government? He replied. I'll explain to the parable of the foxes. I don't have to tell you the, the parable of the foxes. So is Rabbi Elazar Ben Azariah actually pleading with Rabbi Akiva not to take the responsibility on himself because it will end up in his martyrdom? It was one frog, but he croaked and called the others. Rabbi Elazar Ben Azariah felt that the role of the leader is to call out to others to build a philosophical underpinning for the movement. But Rabbi Akiva was not satisfied with that role. He said, what is more important, study or practice? Study that leads to practice. So we noted earlier that the frog, the knowledgeable bird, can fly like a soul that soars to heaven. The frog can also, according to Rabbi Nachman, sing. What is the song that it sings? Well, according to Perik Shira 24, the song of the Tzvardeir is Baruch Shem Kavod This line appears twicely in the daily Shema, which declares God's singularity. And so Rabbi Akiva knows the secret of the Shema. The secret of the Shema is Baruch Shem Kavod which is the time to sanctify God's names with words and actions. As it marches into the oven, the frog is not a frog, it is a bird. It flies to the highest part of the heaven like the sphere of Yesod. It connects heaven and earth like a purified human soul, singing like the greatest of our psalmins, King David. It can say Shema and Baruch Shem like Rabbi Akiva and teach us about martyrdom and redemption. Now, as reading this with the eyes of a post-Holocaust reader, the complexity of what martyrdom is, is reflected both in the views of Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah, and the horrific role that the Judenrat had to play in determining who would be dying Al-Kiddush Hashem, knowing that they would be deported, and who would be saved, and the torturous decisions they had to make, uh, only complexify this, what is a neat distinction between Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah.